Everybody, welcome to another installment of Should Be with Mike G, the show of life, the show of Juarez, the show of El Paso, Fort Worth, politics, and mezcal. Today is a very special interview. I've never taken the time to interview someone that I've been so close to, a beautiful DJ, an incredible mind, a brand educator for Cinco Sentidos, Miss Leslie Nava, a.k.a. Leslie Kobos, we sit down and chat about her incredible voyage, a shift from politics into agave, into moving to Oaxaca, to now educating the folks in the agave community about the amazing work of these mezcaleros y mezcaleras from Cinco Sentidos. So, without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this great chat with Leslie Kobos. youngest aunt she was kind of like the rebel Mm -hmm. out of all of them and uh i grew up with her kind of um she's like 12 years older than i am now um but i don't know i really loved kind of only 12 years old 12 years older i know i think so that's insane i need to think about this because she keeps every year i ask her on her birthday how old she is and she keeps saying 29 so i know she's been saying that for the last 10 years um it might be less to be honest i think she might be it might be 10 years wow um but i feel old now for sure i mean i mean <laughs> that's that's a conversation we've had i think um but no she was she was kind of the rebel and, and the one that got in trouble and stuff and so she kind of uh she was a little bit of an influence on me, but it, it didn't really, I, I don't think it really took hold until um, maybe whenever I, I moved to college and and uh, had to experience UT Austin life. But just in terms of of what the traditional sort of sense of your responsibility as a Mexican towards your family, yeah. I definitely did not follow that. So... You know, in a culture where we came to the United States um, not necessarily with all of the paperwork in order, there was always that push to, as a first-generation uh, American, that push to to support the family. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in, in high school, I always wanted to go to school or to university for art. And I remember my, my whole family was just like, no, like you're in you're stupid if you think you're gonna make money and you need to like you know we have to get a house and we have to pay for all these things and i'm like okay well i guess i'm not doing that and just picked they all wanted me to go into business because of the the music store the record store that we had and i was like nope my brother did that screw that i'm mm-hmm. not i'm doing my own thing got into engineering and like 
had to switch my major because I didn't like calculus. And then I started DJing and I started going out all the time and, you know, all at, at sort of um, at a there was always that sort of friction from my family because they're right. like, what are you doing? So do you have a job? It's a kind like, of a sense of expectation, right? Well, yeah, of course. And, you know, I, I always tried to make it as easy as possible because I knew what I was doing was not the easiest thing mm-hmm. for, for example, for my mom, for a child to be doing, you know, kind of acting against the family's wishes. Mm-hmm. And so I try to find every possible way to support myself. Because I knew that I was living in a city away from my family who didn't necessarily have the means to support me or support my schooling. And so by finding like different ways, like different jobs or um, kind of paving my own way, I just wanted to make sure that I didn't, uh, I guess, put a burden more so than I already was through, you know, not meeting the expectations or, or not passing all my classes or whatever it may be when it you know when it comes to families are all different you know and i told you this but my you know my mom had a very honest conversation with me about having kids recently and i'm now 40 and she was saying but michael i think you really like it And i'm like okay this is great my mom's one of my best friends of course but there was a strange sense of expectation but in the, the smallest of ways so i can't imagine one marriage two having kids and starting a family that that kind of pressure that might be coming down from a traditional mexican family like did you feel any of that as well uh i think mostly from my grandmother because she's very <laughs> very traditional very um conservative for sure my mom had always been she always worked so she never she knew that she needed to provide and was like very strong um sort of female in the family where usually in in Mexican families that's not the case right right? and so she you know she was going out there she was doing stuff for the record store she was making sure that you know all the bills were paid everything and so my grandma was the one that pretty much raised my brother and I at home and being you know conservative and just kind of staying at home and being that matriarch Mm -hmm. that uh, traditional Mexican matriarch in, in the household that was definitely her thing. She she would tell us, you know, in Spanish because she doesn't speak English. She'd be like, "So, when are you gonna have American babies?" <laughs> Which meant, you know, blonde, blue eyed. Right. Um, when am I gonna find like uh, an American husband and you know, live in a really nice two story house and have this sort of perfect life so that she could take care of American babies mm-hmm. for the rest of her life? And so there was definitely that push um, for my brother and I to have. To have kids, especially because we were the first two, we were the oldest yeah. out of like all of my cousins and stuff. So, yeah, it's kind of my grandma doesn't really ask about that anymore. She's just <laughs> she she's just happy if we're like in a relationship. Yeah. She's like, so so are you still by yourself? And I'm like, yeah, okay, you know, now not so much, but yeah. anytime she's like, oh, okay, so you so you found somebody, <laughs> like making sure that we don't end up, you know, alone and. And kind of sad, I guess. Right. She's like, just worried. The thing that's interesting, this whole story begins in El Paso. But having spent so much time behind the bar as a kid in Ciudad Juarez. See? So, tell me about 
I always think that, you know, when I have people on the show that hospitality comes from somewhere. I was like, why do I, why do I like doing sales or why do I like taking care of people from behind you the bar? You always ask this question, yeah. which is great because, you know, in your previous interviews, I've always, that's one of the questions that I'm always interested in because it, I think it, it's kind of, um, I think it all comes from the same, same sort of place, people yeah. in, the, in the industry. And so it's interesting to hear everybody's unique stories about how. Yeah, how something you know that may have happened or somebody they grew up with has now put them on this path mm-hmm. right it's really cool so you know i know the answer to this but where did this affinity for cocktails bars hospitality where did that kind of start you think i think it's it's definitely hospitality and customer service that was instilled from probably the day I was born. (laughs) Um, But my dad, uh, so my dad was living in Ciudad Juarez. Uh, This is, man, I'm going to say this is 25. So maybe like 1990. What is, it's 20, 30? Sure. Let's say 1990 Mm -hmm. just for sake of making it easy. Um, But he was in Ciudad Juarez and he was going to his favorite bar you know after he got off of work doing business deals or blah 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 because he's he had, like, he's a well-educated erudite renaissance man ultimately, yeah right he's definitely a renaissance man i mean i got into reading because of him so yeah. after a very young age i was reading i was like i, I remember in his house in ciudad juarez he had an entire wall just full of books yeah and like the, it, it was cool for me to to kind of go through those books because i didn't have i it, when growing up like we didn't really buy a lot of books the only time i got books was like scholastic book fair or yeah. i would just um like rent them from the library or borrow them from the library at school so and a so, worldly dude yeah so he was he was definitely somebody that um had traveled to europe he traveled a lot to mexico city mm-hmm. he kind of knew a lot about uh sort of having good manners and speaking to people he was great um and so anyway, so he was going to this bar and he actually uh, became really good friends with the owner of this bar. And the bar was, uh, I think, opened in 1952. So it was like an old Ciudad Juarez staple. It still is. Um, and so around like 1990, I want to say the owner of the bar, he was a very, very old man and trusted my dad so much. and was like, I will sell you this bar for bottom dollar. I just want you to have it because I know you're going to take care of it mm. and you're a good businessman and you're intelligent and there's not lots of people around here <laughs> that are like that necessarily. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so my dad took it over and the bar is called Club Quince, but um, where that comes into play is that even though I was born in El Paso uh, at about four, which is probably the earliest I can remember or have memories from, we moved to Fort Worth. But every, let's say every three months or so, uh, my family would go to Ciudad Juarez. And we would stay either at my grandma's house there or we would stay at my dad's house, my Mm. brother and I and my mom. And uh, so I spent summer and winter breaks whenever we had breaks from school in Ciudad Juarez. Even though I was born in El Paso, I don't know anything about El Paso. I'm just now kind of learning more about it. But because I spent so much time there with my dad, of course, I was brought along to his you know, making sure he counts the money and all of his different businesses. Yeah. 
So I just have these memories of, of sitting at the bar, you know, next to at about like 1 p.m. next to all the regulars that are drinking their um, kawamas and and uh, the bartender Chewy, who's been there for years. He came with the bar after my time <laughs> bought it. It so was you probably can, a contract where like, uh, you, you got to take Chewy. It, Sorry. it was literally that, which is, which is amazing. Um, but yeah, Chewy's there. He's been wearing the same bow tie and like red vest, white t-shirt, press, super yeah. clean looking dude. Uh, classic, classic bartender look. Mm. And, um, but yeah, and just, you know, him serving me peanuts or like sardines on a plate or like all the other weird Mexican bar food that, that exists. Uh, sardines with, have yet to catch on, but I really want to see that. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, no, I mean, it's kind of weird, but I have, I, I love sardines. That's <laughs> like, it's weird. Um, but yeah, so just being around that and being around um, my dad, who every time he walked into the bar and still to this day, every time he walks in, he shakes the hand of every single person that's sitting there. And mind you, there's only 15 seats. Yeah. So he's going down and he knows everybody. And I've had people tell me that like, yeah, we went to the bar, but I think your dad hates me. And I'm like, why? He's like, oh, he wouldn't shake my hand. I'm like, oh, shit, he oh, hates wow. you. <laughs> like, <laughs> he definitely heard some stuff about you, like, because he just knows everybody. Yeah. So growing up, you know, every summer and winter, being in this bar that I didn't, you know, we, as a kid, I drank a little bit yeah. at, at dinners and stuff like that. But yeah, that was, it was always somewhere that I felt comfortable in just hanging out, right? Like, because mm-hmm. I never, I never put it in the same level as like, getting super drunk and wasted the right. way that you might whenever you go off to college or something like that. But you know, this journey takes you to Fort Worth, you know, you and your brother and your mom move to Fort Worth. And one of the things that, you know, I've never asked you about, but I've never had to have a duality. I moved a lot as a kid, had zero friends because I'm moving to a new place. But again, how difficult is that for a white guy? But Moving to Fort Worth and having to be both someone of Mexican culture that's proud of it and spending a lot of time there, but then also trying to belong and trying to be part of the greater, I mean, I've been to Fort Worth. Let me just go out on a limb and say white people's place. (laughs) (laughs) I was just there a week ago. I was like, wow, nothing has really changed here. (laughs) Just a little bit more expensive. Right, exactly. It was that. A challenge did you have to have kind of a strategy for belonging is the wrong word but just getting along with people yeah i think uh i i've told some people this story about the first time that i ever realized that i was being discriminated against mm. like as a kid because growing up you know I, I learned spanish first and then from there like once i started school that's when i started learning english yeah because there was nobody in the household really that knew how to speak english except for my aunt but she was going to school and wasn't really like at home much um but i remember i was going to a um like a school in a in a district which was our home district in fort worth that wasn't it was kind of like a a low low social economic status type of school um uh, mostly minorities and from there i was doing like a program where it was like oh this is a smart kids class you know had different names for it gt or this was like a yes class or whatever is what they called it there and so then my mom got married 
with someone who lived in a better neighborhood. Ah. And so she goes, I want you to be in, at this school because I want you to have the best education around the best, you know, the smartest kids, which were white kids. Sure. I mean, that's what we thought, right? And so going to this school, I had to fill out the paperwork like for my, um, my uh, what is it? Entrance. My entrance yeah. into the elementary school as a second grader, right? And I'm like, okay, this is my name. Having to ask my mom, what's my social security number and like all this stuff. And so I was telling the teacher and, and the principal, and I, th I believe my brother was there as well, that I was in this sort of like gifted and talented program at my last school. And they're like, oh, well, we don't recognize that. We'll just put you in this class, which was like the lower social economic right. class in second grade. And I was like, okay. I mean, I didn't know any any different, right? So I saw kids that looked like the kids that I was hanging out with in my old school. So yeah. I was having fun. And then the teacher comes up to me and she's like, you are making hundreds on everything. You shouldn't be in this class. Like you need to be in the next class. Mm. And I go there and <laughs> there's one, one student who, or one or two students who are Hispanic, um, but don't know how to speak English or Spanish. Mm -hmm. And then I think two students, two or three students who are, who are black. And then me and like the rest of this class is white. And I was like, oh, I wonder like why that happened. And it wasn't until I, I got a lot older that I was just like, oh, well, they must have just seen like kind of discriminated against the the district that I came from and the neighborhood that I came from. Yeah. And probably just been like, oh, no, no, no. Like we're going to put you, you know, where we think you belong rather than where you're telling us wow. like you belong. And so, I mean, I don't know if it's like a huge amount of discrimination, but I think it's. It was just kind of weird because that was the first time that I was in class with mostly white students. Yeah. Um, and so it was kind of different because, you know, you're spending more money on clothes and I wanted to fit in. So I just wanted, I was like, oh, I got I to gotta buy like fancy clothes that, that have rhinestones on them and I need to have this new thing. And why don't I have like, you know, everybody else has. You're both. Yeah, like <laughs> people already have instruments. I'm like, yeah. where's my instrument? And, you know, and it always, it was hard hanging out with, those friends of mine that i made because i lived we still kind of live like 20 minutes away yeah so many times anytime i got invited to do something my mom's like no because nobody's gonna be able to pick you up or whatever and i was like all right so cool. my mom yeah. whenever we moved to fort worth uh this was in 1995 my mom uh rented out a little space in a flea market and started selling cassettes and you know that the way that she handled customers and was able to find music for anybody. like, that's why we went to Mexico a lot. You know, well, we don't, we don't own the stores anymore. So I think it's okay for yes. me to say <laughs> that like we brought over a lot of music from Mexico, kind of across the border, not so legally, I guess. Um, <laughs> Pre-Napster days though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. And so a lot of the times whenever, you know, my friends were hanging out at the weekends or on the weekends, I was at the store or this little stand, you mm. know? And that stand over the course of two years grew and grew and grew. My mom, you know, put in new shelves. We started carrying CDs. Uh, she started doing like dance competitions and, you know, people just wanted to come to that. It, it turned into a pretty large kind of shop um, and come there just because it was fun. Like she would play all the new music. She would have dance competitions where the prize was free CDs. She got hired on to MC some parties like on the other end of the flea market where they had like rodeo and stuff. 
Um, so it became a pretty big deal. And so my dad came out to Fort Worth and helped my mom open a second shop that was a little bit more, let's say like more modern, not, not so many cassette tapes, way more music quantity wise. Yeah. Um, and from there, that was in 1997, I want to say. So I was six. So, um, so I was spending, there, if there wasn't anybody to take care of me on the weekends, I was at the flea market. <laughs> or I was at this bazaar where our second shop was, just hanging out. Or my yeah. mom would put me in the corner and be like, hey, make sure that guy in the jacket doesn't steal anything. <laughs> and so like, imagine some eight-year-old, like nine-year-old girl running across the, the super small, I mean, Maybe like four hundred square foot shop and just being like, Mama está robando. Like she's <laughs> he's going, he's stealing something. And like she would just chase him out the door. And it was very weird. But that I spent so much time at this store that like I kind of forgot that I even had like I never had that sense of like, I need to hang out with my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, because there was always that responsibility of like, well, if I'm not kind of being taken care of um by my other aunts who were going to church or meetings, um, then I was going to be at the store helping, mm-hmm. either going and grabbing food for the family, like, or whatever. Um, so, yeah. I mean, so, you had a job pretty much, if you think yeah, about it. Yeah, like, for sure. On. Child labor is a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, family labor makes it okay, yeah, I think, right? right. <laughs> so, if it's family. But I think that, I mean, I, my mom was just such a big character, and she still is. Um, but, in that time, my mom was such a big character that I became very, I feel like very shy. Mm. Uh, but I also came to like love the music that was being played because I saw how other people reacted to it. So like the dance competitions, for example, I thought were amazing. I was like, wow, like how are they doing that? Like how are they shaking their hips? Like I don't have any. And you know, like <laughs> I just, and then break dancers would come by and like it was really cool that it made people so happy. And so uh-huh. I started paying attention and as I got older, my job was to listen to the radio for all the new hits. And then, you know, anytime my mom would go to the bathroom, I mean, this was like probably 10 years old, she would leave me by myself at the at the shop. And somebody would come up to me and they'd be like, oh, do you know how that song goes? It's like, I'm like, oh, see, see, see. And then I would grab the CD because I knew who it was. Yeah. Um, but it definitely became my job to know about music and what new music was coming out. And at the same time, I was finding out about music that I didn't know that. Now I'm looking back on it and was like, I don't know that a 10 or 11-year-old child should have seen like the prin- the um, like Prince concert, right? Or like mm-hmm. there's the Eagles concert, like the Hell Freezes Over concert, stuff like that that my mom was also playing to you know promore, promote and stuff. I was like, yeah, I learned about those guys when I was super young just because of her. And now they're some of my favorite artists, right? So I got to find out a lot about English music as well as Spanish music. Yeah. The work in politics, working for the state and stuff, was that in some way, did that spawn from how you felt as a kid coming into DFW and being like, I don't know why I'm being treated this way, probably not thinking about it like that, but like maybe equality or like socialized sociology things like that where did, i just don't know where i put it simply rather i'm not sure where that deep interest in hu- political service and civic service comes from i think it comes from a very naive feeling of i can make a difference mm-hmm. <laughs> which was something that you know was instilled not only by the sort of american values that were being propagated and 
in the 80s, 90s, you know. But also from the fact that, you know, America was a place to make your life better and you had the opportunity to have the American dream. And so for me, I mean, at the time where, like, whenever I was really young, a lot of my family was undocumented. And so there was always that sort of underlying um, recognition or sort of... uh, I guess, like, wave of feeling that I would have all throughout school, like, in middle school and high school, where I was, like, you know, we'd get into discussions in whatever class. I'm like, okay, well, but why do you guys, why are you guys so unfair? Like, anytime it came out that, you know, it's like, oh, well, people need to follow the rules and this and that. And I'm like, man, like, some kids say some terrible things about, you know, people that that are different from them. So I always had, um, I always felt bad. And I always felt bad that my family had to be afraid of going out or driving to get groceries or be afraid of um, even with the shop sometimes. Like once Napster came out, like that was a big deal because if it was if particular people in my family got caught being at the store, then that's not OK. And, um, and something bad would happen to them. Right. And this and is so, the, the, the store we're talking like early 2000s. Yeah. So we would expect that things have changed in 16 years, but just hearing about someone who serves tacos that's at a white horse in Austin just getting pulled by ice, how do you feel about what has ultimately been no change or more aggression towards immigrants? I mean, there's some, I, that was one of the things that happened after um, 9-11, too. Like, that. whenever that happened, I, I feel like all immigrants were afraid mm. um obviously you know a particular group more than others rightly so but it was that sense of like um that it, oh man there's just a lot of mean mean conservative people coming out of the woodworks during that time and so it was more so of like let's stick with the people that we know and let's take care of each other. Mm-hmm. So if there were, I mean, in Fort Worth, there was like ICE, you know, they were going around to different Mexican establishments even back then. And so we we would have like a telegram going on where it's like if it happened in one place, the entire like neighborhood would find out about it type what? of thing. Oh, no kidding. So it's like if, if ICE showed up somewhere, then they would call so-and-so, which would call so-and-so. Or even if like the cops, um, like once Napster started coming out and they started doing like raids for bootleg cds and all that stuff we would hear about it from across town and be like hey someone's was checking this and so like stores would hide all the bootleg stuff wow of course that was like the end of our store once that started um but yeah like it 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 was we became a closer tight-knit community but there's there's still the same problems going on so whenever i mean to be honest i got into politics more so because there was a new major at UT that required a semester of study abroad. Mm. And I felt like I just needed to get out. The same way that I graduated high school early from Fort Worth, get away, and I moved to Austin. Um, I wanted to get out of Austin and explore something different. And so that major ended up being international relations. But I had to focus on political economy thinking like, okay, well, I understand the way that economy kind of moves you know, money makes the world go around. So yeah. let me try to, if I still feel like I can change the world, let me try to do it in terms of money because that's what I know mm. through, you know, the business or through 
going across the border however many times or, you know, the way bringing that, stuff across. Yeah. <laughs> it was like bringing stuff across or, you know, just even hearing about paying people off or whatever. I was like, okay, well, this does a lot. Money does a lot more for you than, you know. Prayer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of, you know. Um, sorry, sorry, folks, but yeah. So, yeah, so I, I felt like, you know, I was like, okay, this is the right thing to do. And so once... I graduated, which took way longer than it was supposed to. But again, I guess I'm I'm a renegade in that way. So, you know, screw four years. I did it in seven. <laughs> ha ha. Like, um, Keep I've everyone got more experience. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all can wait in anticipation. Yeah, I learned a little bit more, I think, um, than the rest of you. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's once I graduated and started working, I started working at the state capitol. Um, I was like, cool, I'm going to get into this. Like. I could see myself working for an international organization in Europe, um, like the UN or something, and, and really like make a difference. Mm. And then I started working in state politics, and I was very quickly, you know, almost uh, what what is it called? What's the word that I'm thinking of? Um, disenfranchised or disenchanted? Disenchanted, yeah. exactly. Disillusioned. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so you know, I. I Sometimes I think about it where I'm like, well, maybe if I had if I had been born and grown up in a different state, yeah, then things would have turned out differently as far as like my political uh, career, I guess. Was there so everyone's got a moment, a moment where it crossed their mind they start a business because something doesn't work, leaving politics, of which you sent you know, spent seven years getting a degree for and everything. What was the moment where like, yeah, dude, I, this, no, no more. I can't do this anymore. So I worked at the state capitol for four years and I worked at, uh, I worked at the attorney general's office for two years. And at the state capitol, I remember during one of the sessions, I was standing in on a uh, finance committee and it was a pretty it was a pretty tough one. I forget exactly what they were talking about. But I remember at the end of the committee, uh, the room clears out, you know, people are testified for or against a certain bill and the senators did their, you know, posturing or whatever they do. Mm-hmm. And uh, as the room emptied out, there was a Democratic state senator and a Republican state senator. And I remember the, the the Democrat like looked over and was like, "All right, but really, what are we gonna do about this? Like, what can we work out?" And I was just like, I look over, I was like, "What? Like, is this? I mean, it was just, it, I was like, oh, like, why can't y'all do this in front of the public? Right, right. Like these deals that you guys are making behind closed doors because you know I scratch your back, you scratch mine, or whatever." And you guys are kind of like attacking each other, not attacking and, you know, the way that attacking is now, but this was in like 20, uh, 2015, I guess. And I was like, man, like you guys could be working together this whole time. You guys could be working together to just do the best you can for everyone, for the entire state of Texas. Mm. But instead you're trying to cover your own butt or whatever. And, you know, you gotta be like making concessions only because you have to take this stance for sort of um optics optics exactly and so that was the first time that i actually seen it in person 
And it was in an empty room with just two senators left and like a couple of, you know, staff members. And the guy was like, yeah, so what, so what are we going to do? Like, okay, what do you need? And I was like, what the fuck? Sorry. Shen- yeah. Um, but after that, I was just like, we okay. We can clearly swear on here. Okay. Just for the record. <laughs> so yeah, I was just like, what the fuck? Like, you know, it, it was very dis, disencouraging. Sure. Discouraging. Sorry. Um, and so after that, I said, okay, you know what? If I want to do some good working for the state, then maybe, maybe I want to go to law school. I was like, maybe I want to be a prosecutor because at least those guys put the bad, bad people away. Yeah. So that's when I started working at the attorney general's office and working uh, for the criminal prosecutions division, which was some pretty heavy stuff. I mean, they handle all the capital murder cases. They handle um, human trafficking. They have a child protection unit uh, for child abuse and, and uh, you know, tax evasion, white-collar crime, all the serious stuff and, and kind of hearing these stories about these terrible, terrible people that are being murdered and, like, let's... Uh, That's bound to make you drink a bit. Oh, my God. It was exhausting. And I was only an assistant. Like, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't really get too deep into any of the evidence and stuff, but I realized that that definitely was not for me just personally. Um, and so around that time, I started DJing. Uh, this was probably in 2016. I started DJing a little bit um, and DJing vinyl because I, I realized that I would just go home and listen to my records. And that would make me feel better than, or that would make me relax at the end of like a really tough day. And so I realized that the work that I was doing for the attorney general, um, the day that I quit, they offered me like a data job that was the most important one in the state pretty much. And I was like, I, if I do this, I'm gonna be stuck in this office a long, long time, yeah. like every day. And I'm not gonna be able to enjoy anything <laughs> like afterwards, I'm gonna be so drained and I realized, I was like, you know what? I'm ready to just quit and figure it out afterwards. So, you know, it, one of the things that I, I find really fascinating about this is DJing has multiple facets. It can be easier than you make it. <laughs> By that, I mean, you've held very true and persistent to your guns of doing only vinyl. And we all love putting on a vinyl record. You have to flip it over. It's a very active relationship you have with the music. But why that? Why was that the lens of which you're thinking, this is how I want to DJ? Um, I think I just, so it's, it's weird because there's always been so many moving parts in my life that the whole DJ thing actually happened whenever I was in high school. Mm. And so... Whenever I was taking care of the store by myself, my mom, I remember, had like a, an eight-channel mixer where she had CD players and TVs and DVD players all hooked up to the same thing. And, and there was DJ mixes and CDs that we had. And I thought it was so cool that they're like blending this stuff. And I would try to do it with the mixer there, like not really succeeding because I didn't <laughs> understand what was going on. But from there, I actually met um, some DJs through my stepdad at the time. His brother was a DJ, and they're from Brownsville. And so I started going to my first DJ shows. And with them, um, like they they brought me into the whole DJ culture from, I guess, from when I was like, this was 17. Even whenever I moved to Austin, they would invite me out. 
I started helping with uh, music events just on the side and like promoting and you know, I had a fake ID, of course. I was able to do all these things <laughs> <laughs> and do South by at 20 and do all these shows. So I was always kind of around DJs at, at all the time. And I, I worked for like a music blog and interviewed some DJs. And and it was always something that I wanted to do, but I just didn't have the means to do it. So in like 2013, um, I got a record player and I got some albums and I don't know what, I think it was because I had kind of been around so many DJs playing electronic music or some form of just like top 40 stuff that I kind of lean into the vinyl thing a lot Yeah. and started buying more and more records. I was going to state sales and picking up old, old records um, that was mostly like 50s rockabilly stuff because that's what I had gotten into. And so... Yeah, I, I think just the feeling, and I, everybody always says it, but it's the feeling of playing a vinyl record is different. You know, you've got the little static on the back end. You have to flip the record. You listen to the entire record. Mm -hmm. uh, but as far as like me DJing, it came from uh, one of my really good friends, Dick Nixon, who's a DJ here in Austin. Uh, we dated for a while and then stopped dating, but we both had a, a true, I mean, the way most DJs do it, a true passion for music, but also collecting records. And so I, I went up to him one day and I was like, hey, like, how about we do a night where we just play vinyl? And he he was just like, great, like I get to play vinyl that I haven't listened to in a while. And, um, and you know, and it's cool to play it on like a night off and it kind of relieves some stress from playing, you know, like Sixth Street music or whatever. And so we started doing that and I realized that I had a lot of fun. Like, even though I didn't know how to mix at that point, mm. Um, he was kind of a mentor in that way where uh, I was able to kind of recognize BPMs and recognize genres a little bit differently in terms of playing them cohesively. And from there, it's just been, I don't know, it's also kind of cool being, you know, one of the few people that's still playing vinyl rather yeah, than well, the, relying only on digital. The, the, digital the weird similarity and kind of the... Am I talking too much? I feel like... You know, this is... <laughs> well, I mean, it's supposed to be me talking hardly at all. So, yes, this is you good. You listen this is good. so well. I wonder why I wonder why people like doing these with you. They don't like doing it. They just, they just do it. They don't like doing it. But one of the things I think that there's this organic, guttural, natural connection to the sound waves that is so analogous and so similar to Mescal. So when I met you, although not working at Las Perlas, you were working at Las Perlas at the time, which despite its faults is still a mezcaleria in Austin. They've got bottles and it was a good experience for you. How did you feel about working behind that bar, which was really like a launching point for you into the world of mezcal? Well, it's, it's kind of funny. What a wonderful segue that we met. We met at Seven Grand. I was <laughs> yeah. I was an employee at Los Perlas, but we met at Seven Grand, and I was DJing uh, Ardbeg party at Seven Grand when yeah. we met. So it was I was doing both, right? Yeah, I was, that, <laughs> I was absolutely, yeah. Um, but no, Los Perlas. Whenever I quit the Attorney General's office, I actually went to Los Perlas that that evening, like the day that I put in my. I think I put in like a month notice. Mm -hmm. um, I went to Los Perlas and. I'd been there a couple of times, so I'd kind of, you know, became friends with the people behind the bar. 
And I remember talking to Thomas, who was uh, the bar manager at the time of, of West Burles. And actually, I remember going to Seven Grand first. Yeah. I was like, oh, I love whiskey. And then they made the mistake of telling me that they were opening up a mezcal bar next door. I was like, <laughs> oh, shit. Like, Sorry, guys. See yeah, you later. Like, yeah. You know, I was talking to Jeremy Campbell. I remember the exact moment where I was like, wow, you're never going to see me again. Because he's the one that told me. So I started going to this Perlis just by myself and picking out one or two pours of mezcal just to try. So I was like, let me try this one. Let me try this one without really knowing too much, but just kind of exploring it on my own. Uh, so whenever I quit, I showed up and I told Thomas, I'm like, hey, well, if you're looking for a bar back, like, he's like, actually, yeah. He's like, I think you've tried more bottles on the wall than some of the people that work here. I was like, dude, let's do it. He's like, all right, let's do it. I'm like, well, let's do it. And I'm like, what do I do? And he's like, well, apply. And I was like, how do I play? And so whatever, it ended up working out, did the interview and um, working behind a bar for the first time since like. It, w- it was weird because I, I thought about Chewy. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, because it's in your blood. Right. So it was it was kind of funny. Um, I was very, very enthusiastic about the job. And I was very happy that I was working there. And I was wanting to learn as much as possible. And at the time, the spirit guide was Rashid, mm-hmm. who I had met at Half Step because I used to live on, on Rainy Street. And that was like the na- the local bar that I would go to. And so I had already kind of had a relationship with him. And I remember saying, I hope, I hope it wasn't too embarrassing. But I remember telling him, like, like, I can't believe you're the spirit guide here. Like, you're teaching me about spirits right now. Like, if I were to think of one person in Austin, like, out of all the bars that I've been to and all the bartenders I know, I was like, if I were to think about one person in Austin to be a spirits guide, it's like, that's you. Like, I want you to teach me. And like, I'm so proud of you. Oh, he's going to love this. And I'm just, oh man, I gushed him so hard. Like, that guy is still a huge role model for me just in every single thing that he does. Um, and I I really respected having him be the spirits guide whenever I started. I don't, I don't think he was there for much longer after I had started, but just that first step where I was like, okay, cool. I'm learning all these things. And I've always been somebody that works hard at whatever job that I have. So I, I really enjoyed working at Les Perlis. And the one thing that I wanted to accomplish was to taste everything on the wall. Yeah. And if that meant that I was spending my own money to do it or like staying after my shift or whatever. Um, Education worth paying for, right? Absolutely. That was probably more worth it to me than the seven years I spent <laughs> in college. Yeah. Um, obviously because of of the use that i had i guess at the time but yeah it was it was something that really opened my eyes to mezcal and really kind of convinced me that i was doing the right thing so, in that quitting state quitting the right. regular 9 to 5 and trying to just do something that made me happy so another introduction occurs sometime after <laughs> with our mutual friend mr jason paul cox i remember he was here in this room, his first trip to Austin, I believe, and we hung out a bit, and then you guys introduced each other, and the rest is history. You, in April, let me be the historian here, right? So, you in April of 2019, I think that's right, decide, you know what? This voyage of Mescal is going to take me to Oaxaca. How difficult was that jump and that leap to say, I'm going to move to Oaxaca. I'm going to study and study. 
it was <laughs> it was surprisingly um i mean it was kind of like i don't want to say it was surprisingly easy because we had started dating so i didn't want no to i know you. but yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no it was it uh, didn't so, it, we may i think things it became easy right so um in February is whenever Jason came to Austin to launch Cinco Sentidos. And he had done an interview with you. Um, and I remember I wasn't here for it, but he was going to Las Perlas for something. Mm -hmm. And he, he was meeting up with, I forget who. This was the half-step anniversary party where he left after this, I think. And y'all finally sat down and chatted. Yeah, but before that, before that, he had shown up to Los Perlas. But oh, yeah. it was the night that I was asked to do like a double or something. I was right. like, okay, well, because, um, I, yeah, I remember Drew. I think it was Drew that was, ah, somebody was sick. And I was like, okay, well, I had these plans to go with Mike. There's, I was like, let me go have a drink at Small Victory. Favorite bar, by the way. So it's like, let me go have a drink there, and then I'll come back at like 10 p.m. and I'll finish out the shift, no problem. And so that I left right as Jason was showing up to Las Perlas, mm -hmm. and so we didn't meet there. But um, it wasn't until the next day, on Sunday. I don't remember why we. It was oh, no, a no, half no. step. Sorry, sorry. So I went to the half step anniversary party to take pictures of the event and. I had recognized Jason from you, I guess, being like, okay, I'm going to interview him. And so I go up to him. I'm like, hey, like, you just did an interview with Mike, blah, blah, blah. So we got to talking and, and ended up hanging out <laughs> pretty much the entire night. And, uh, and just, you know, talking about whatever, like Mescal and, and Austin and this and that. And, um, and from there, I... We were talking about Oaxaca. I, I really, it's an anniversary. Half step anniversaries always yeah. get a little bit blurry. Little blurring, I feel yeah. like, yeah, because everybody starts showing up and then there's like daiquiri competition or like, you know, yeah. races and, and shots. And yeah, it gets but a little bit it. difficult. Right. So um, afterwards, I'd gotten his contact information and I had texted him uh, from work asking him a question about Cinco Sentidos. And then also telling him that I had kind of put in my time to, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to leave in about a month. I was like, hey, so by the way, if you're looking for a bartender in Oaxaca, let me know. Joke, joke. Har, har, har. <laughs> like, and he immediately goes, actually, we are. Like, He's like, come shit. down. Yeah. And I was just like, God damn it. Like, okay. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, we're looking for somebody to come in. Like, our current bartender is going to leave soon and this and that. And I was like, holy shit. Like. I have, I have to, I have to. And so I had, <laughs> the first time I had, I had agreed to go down and move there and work was just like, oh yeah, I'll head down like after our, our uh, I was in Europe, I think like half of May or something. So I'll come down like in June and stay through like the, like July, middle of July. He's like, no, I need somebody like to stay a little bit longer. I'm like, okay, fine, I'll stay until August. And it's like, yeah, but can you stay until like September? I was like, God damn. <laughs> so it ended up turning into like almost a four month trip. Yeah. Um, but it 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 just seemed right to do it, and it I felt like it. I if I hadn't taken advantage of that that offer, then I would. I mean, obviously, I'd be in a different place today. But also, I would have felt kind of shitty about 
myself and where I was going, especially since I had kind of already moved on from Les Perlas mentally. So yeah. I was like, this has to be the next thing, right? Like I have to go see this stuff in person. Like even if I don't know everything about Cinco Sentidos, it was like I have to be where the, for the last year I've been learning about Mescal and I've been hearing things and I've been looking things up and kind of learning about how to make it. I was like, but I, do I actually know how to make it? Like, Well, it's, it's interesting. So here, this I was thinking about this today because obviously, you know, I've got this privileged information of knowing you and all of that and spending so much time with you. But the thing is, is so Monday is a Mezcal Monday at Suerte, right? And it's Cinco Sentidos night, which is great because everything's half price. And I'm thinking to myself, because we've got this amazing Austin group, which is a great participation stuff. And I'm like, should I say something or are people going to be like, you're just promoting Cinco Sentidos. <laughs> and I thought about it. I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. I don't care because I love it. It's so, it's so, so good. So now that you are the regional or the Texas ambassador, however Jason wants to phrase it, and representing this incredible brand, brand educator. Okay, great. I, oh, that's yeah. good. I gotta, I gotta take a note about that brand mm-hmm. educator. But you went to the place, you saw the men, Umberto, because I think that's the only woman that was actually a mescalera. And you well, saw. I mean, that. And a few of the wives also help with oh, amazing the process. And some of them outshine their husbands because they For make sure. better pottery that makes more money For than sure. they do. Exactly. But coming back with the gig. Being able to represent these families, being able to represent these fine destilados, how does it feel in hindsight now? Because it's been a few months, if not more than three months. You got the gig, you didn't anticipate it, and you now get to stand in front of strangers who love your product before you even show up. How does that feel? It's so easy. It makes my job so easy. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's crazy because whenever whenever Cinco Sentidos had launched in Texas and I tried it, I immediately thought, I was like, this is special. I have never tasted a Sierra Negra that tastes like this. I have never tasted a Tobla. That that was impressive. I remember I, oh, this is how we freaking met. Now I remember Jason and I met at um, Austin Shaker. He was doing a tasting. Oh, no kidding. Before the half Oh, that's right. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So I'm like over here being all cool and like sniffing and whatever. But I remember just thinking, I was like, I've never tasted these varietals of agave. I've never picked up these sort of flavors from this ever. Mm. And so I knew it was something special. And I knew going down there, the first Palenque that I visited was Delfino, which is what we're drinking right now, the Sulipisora from um, from Puebla. That was the first Palenque that Jason took me to. I was like, oh, man, this is crazy. Like, it's delicious. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from here is, I mean, it's only only up from here because of all the all the producers that I went to go visit. So now that I'm able to come back and talk to people about it, but also whenever people hear about me being the sort of representative for the brand, they're like, oh, my God, how did you get a job like that? And I was right. like, I don't know. I was like, I guess you got to put in your dues or something, right? Well, and you say that like all ca- like all casually, and I'm like, yeah, you got to put in months of work working at the restaurant where they serve this stuff and they built the brand for. Yeah. You know, which is not easy work. Maybe it wasn't the time, but overall in terms of the journey, it's not an easy thing to do. But something that I, I wanted to ask you, because we talk about agave a lot, having the pleasure of teaching with you and stuff, is you've seen it done. You've smelled it. You've slept on cots. You've played basketball with these guys, et cetera, et cetera. And given that agave is growing so much and Cinco Sentidos is still playing those amazing songs in a garage, to use a metaphor, 
How do you feel about big mezcal? Knowing that it's very different. The people are different. The process, the cost is different. How do you feel about that? I think that's a conversation that we've been having um, more so recently. Uh, but now that you were kind of, you asked me that question on whether I was sort of the renegade of the family or whatever, yeah. rebel. I'm kind of connecting it now to Cinco Sentidos in a way where I'm like, man, because I'm whenever I got back from Oaxaca, I was just like, I, I felt like I was just ready to just like talk shit to people and just be like, ah, but you're not doing small batches and blah, 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 and this and that. I mean, all the things that make Cinco Sentidos great, right? Like, yeah uncertified mezcal so you're not having to kind of control every single part of the process fuck the government right i mean there come you on. Go. i was already <laughs> in that mindset where i was just like oh man like you know fuck regulations fuck this and blah blah, blah and like let's do it old school it's and all like, optics it's all to the people and blah blah, blah. Yep. i was like who cares you know about this thing and money and whatever i was like let's let's <laughs> well you know i was just kind of feeling a little bit um rebellious i guess in that sort of way so whenever i got back having such an amazing time at techo which is a rooftop bar um, of el destilado and being able to take control of of the menu and create my own drinks and having that freedom after being in a really uh sort of uh let's say more commercial bar i yeah. guess uh high volume ish bar was amazing and so i came back with this energy like well, we got you know whatever like let's let's start gorilla style and like everything about mezcal and and uh but now you know i've kind of chilled out a little bit and um the one thing that i've realized is that i will never learn as much about mezcal as i will being in oaxaca or being mm. in Apalenque. and so as much as at the time or you know, even just like this, I came back what last September, so it's mm -hmm. only been a few months, um, that half a year. Uh, I realized it's like okay, let me chill out for a second and just have a goal in mind to where I want to go visit these places, no matter how big they are, and just see, and yeah. then make up my own informed opinion, which is also kind of like a political thing, right? Of course. Yeah. I don't want to just believe what other people are telling me. I don't want to believe what's in the news. I don't want to believe what's in, you know, bias sort of. Dollars uh, pay for a message, don't they? They do. And that's one thing that I, I realized working at Los Perlas, having such brand centric information coming through that bar, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it, it is very uh, sort of, it's a one sided. It's one side of the conversation. It's the lens is paid for, for sure. And so having that and then having that experience of seeing and hearing stories from people that live in these towns, I'm just like, okay, well then the only real way to learn is by being there. Mm. And so rather than being that sort of rebellious, like fuck the establishment kind of kid whenever I had gone back, now I just want to be like, you know what? Let me figure it out for myself and like let me create my own opinions based off of the information I'm able to gather from visits. Mm -hmm. And so whether that be visiting, you know, Viejo Indecente, mm -hmm. which I've driven we, past it a couple times we, and yeah, it looks super go. industrial kind of from the outside. Sure. Um, but or any sort of Delma Gay Palenque if if, you know, we ever have the opportunity or even Oaxaca or whatever other brands. Um 
you know, there's always a sort of tension anyways between people that ask too many questions, especially in Mexico. (laughs) So it's, I want to be able to go and have that freedom to try to get this information and try to learn as much as possible in the most open way possible. I don't want to just go in with a bias and be like, all right, well, let me make sure this is true or let Mm -hmm, me make sure mm -hmm. they're oh, this must be bullshit, so let me go see it. I don't think that's the right attitude to have. Are you optimistic? So I have a few more questions for you, one of which is things may seem bleak given sustainability, but we're not talking about wood, we're not talking about all these other things. But overall, at the end of the day, you kick back, you drink a mezcal. Are you relatively optimistic that great producers and great product will still come to us? And will still be produced with the same level of quality that it has been. <laughs> I'm still stuck thinking about Texas politics. So I'm like, no, <laughs> it's the worst. Um, no, but yeah, I think so. I think in terms of things that are tangible, the quality speaks for itself. And so mezcal uh, or desilados de agave um, made by certain people will be recognized Mm. at the end of the day. And that's what I've noticed working for Cinco Sentidos is no matter what, like people have a respect for that brand because of the quality of the brand. Yeah. And uh, it it feels good because that means that I can go, like whenever I had first tried Cinco Sentidos, my favorite was the Biquish Madriquish Mm. at the Nogenes. And I remember telling Jason, I'm like, I'm so excited to meet him. You know, he's in like a town in the Miawadlan region. And um, so we show up and I'm just like, I'm fangirling, you know, I'm just like, oh my God, this is so cool. And one of the things that I told him, I was like, your mezcal is my favorite, or your, I don't want to say mezcal because everybody's going to start jumping on me for it. But your desilada is like my favorite from Cinco Sentidos. And I always tell people to drink it and other people love it. And like, I think that having that and knowing that these guys are still doing the same thing that they've been doing and still being cognizant of the way they're doing it in order to protect the quality of what they're making. Um, Yeah, I have hope for those, for these producers that do it that way. And I think that there is a huge role for the people that are serving these things to educate consumers that wouldn't necessarily get this information otherwise. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important in that way, like for me to be confident that production of mezcal is going to kind of stay true and stay at a, a high quality level. Um, yeah, you know, I'm optimistic about that. And I'm optimistic about mezcal kind of being a, a, a drink that everybody is able to appreciate. Yeah. But I think it definitely takes bartenders, it takes bar owners, bar managers uh, to educate people that walk through the door and help them have a really good experience whenever they're trying this yeah because there's so many times that somebody's like yeah i tried mexico and cancun and like i blacked out and i'm like i've blacked out from much worse i'm sure (laughs) (laughs) so don't tell me that like tell me about you know 
how what was the experience you had because it was just you buying a bottle of like let me give you know give me that mezcal and then yeah not really caring about where it came from or anything then obviously that's to the detriment of the culture that's to the detriment of the industry of course so i've been really you know i've never asked you this question Oh, and we got this big i love i love oh, the big God. galoot of a dog next door too you can hear him like his deep guttural bark he's protecting me he's, he's like, protected he's like don't fucking ask this question. question do not don't mike don't, we've seen each other don't, before don't ask don't so you're sipping this azuli pisora anywhere in the world doesn't matter where but you can have a conversation with anyone living or deceased who would you love to sit down and sip this destilado with with all the times that i've heard you ask this question mm -hmm. for some reason i've never thought about what my answer would be <laughs> <laughs> so i feel a little bamboozled right now even though you knew very much that i would ask i know you this question. i don't know i answered this the other night by saying uh i was hanging out with some djs and i, I think i just asked it being inspired by you and i was like man i don't know maybe jim carrey Oh, because I feel like recently, like he is so real mm. in his opinions, in the way that he is, even in his humor and and maybe his not humor. Like whenever he has like the insights he has into life and some of the interviews that I've seen, I'm just like, man, I'd love to just hang out with you. Yeah. Um, oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, I think he has just a different perspective on life and with seeing so many comedians just um sort of fall fall into depression and fall into uh kind of the sense of like you know i i don't fit in or i don't belong here or this life isn't for me or anything like that and seeing somebody like jim carrey recognizing that but also helping other people get out of that feeling um has been kind of inspiring wow but yeah i don't know yeah, i think I like maybe that. jim carrey i don't know if he likes mezcal but i'm I sure can, he would I spend can... time to talk about life with you yeah i'm sure and I, i've always you know the mask is one of my favorite movies so <laughs> 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 liar liar like yeah. all of those i think i grew up with jim carrey being mm. eternal sunshine that was his, his the shift eternal right? sunshine so the last last question i've got for you you've done such a good job of elevating yourself, rebuilding all of the the trust and the faith in you as a DJ doing vinyl. You're out there teaching people about destilados at the forefront of stuff in Texas in terms of agave. But what is next? I don't know, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Coronavirus might stop everything in its tracks. Maybe. As you were saying, there's a sort of fork in my life uh where currently i'm juggling you know like you said south by trying to plan 10 different showcases or you know different venues with a couple buddies of mine and taking care of that but also trying to plan trainings uh for cinco sentidos in dallas and houston and san francisco maybe if uh they don't ground flights or something <laughs> weird <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm honestly, you know, people usually have an answer on like, oh, well, we've got these events going on. We've got this and that. And right now, like, I can absolutely admit that I'm at a split where I don't know what's next. 
I'm just following whatever is present for me. Yeah. Um, whatever opportunity opportunities present themselves because I think it's unfair to not weigh all the options. Well, if I know anything about you, is that I'll chug this bottle. Well, there's, there's the only right that there's mescal left. But that just kidding. I am more much more respectful of the spirit. Tomese con respeto. I know, right? <laughs> no, but you know, I I've never sat down and interviewed someone that I know as well as you, and well, then I don't know, know what's what to next. Ask. You probably know what's no, next better than I, I do. Don't. Of course, I don't. No, I mean, but, there's, uh, there's wishes, right? There's. I want to go back to Oaxaca. Yeah, I want yeah, yeah. to go. What's well, inevitability? Explore more. Yeah, I want yeah, to yeah. go to Michoacan. I want to go to Chiapas. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I'm assuming that I can go to these places as easily. But you know, it's. I just want to learn. Of course. And if that means learning in music and DJing more and becoming more active in that, or if that means going back to Oaxaca pretty soon, or just one thing that I, I really enjoy is learning, um, but also in turn educating mm. and sharing what I've learned. Because I don't think that there's enough people in this world that do that. I agree. And so, so the, the, I'm going to end it on this last bit because... I have loved mezcal for, for years, but not to the degree of making sure I can speak the language and practice that with you and dedicating time to going to Juarez with you. And you, whether you know it or not, you've been a massive inspiration to me to stay committed to the people that can't be in front of these mics. I try to go wherever I can to capture the voices that I can. But there are many men and women that simply cannot do that. So you remain an inspiration to me to keep following that pursuit and keep along on that journey. So we made it happen. Yeah. Salut. <laughs> well, and thank you so much for even doing that interview with Armando. Yeah, that's Because great. I think that those that are able don't necessarily do enough. And documenting conversations with people that especially in mexico that nobody would hear from or of otherwise is something that's super important and i think something that's very much appreciated because mexican people like to be appreciated for their hard work so I've, we're some of the hardest workers around so, so i've been told <laughs> yeah so well it's been brilliant chatting with you you know we get to do this all the time but it's always a pleasure to learn more about you so salut salut and leslie mi amor thank you so much and uh talk soon yeah so there we have it miss leslie kobos the moonlighting queen herself amazing analog dj by night and brand educator for cinco sentidos during the day it's been a pleasure getting to know her over the past mm, year and a half or so you know don't hold me to the time there but we sat down, we sipped some mezcal, and now everyone can understand what makes this wonderful woman tick. So, Leslie, thank you so much for sitting down with me and getting to sip some amazing mezcal and chat about your life. So, thanks, everybody, for listening to Show to V with Mike G. No matter what you're going to be doing during non-South by Southwest 
South by Southwest week that just began, or if you're thinking, you know, I really am starting to like James Bader a lot. He was great in the 80s, but look at him now. Please keep dancing.